0: 1 Kings chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. Uh, In the midst of a terrible king, Ahab, we have this uh, wealth of things that we can learn as Christians. And so we uh, look at that uh, our second week this week. Chapter 20 of 1 Kings, starting in verse 1, this is God's word eternally true. Now, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots. He went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, My lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I am going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble. When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders of the people all answered, Don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers. Tell my lord, the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time. But this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Ben-Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men, prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, This is what the Lord says. The young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, You will. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who reported Men are advancing from Samaria. He said, if they come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The young officers of the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Here ends our reading. You have a response of thankfulness that's printed for you in your bulletins. The Word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Uh, The word of hope gets thrown out a lot, and it can mean a lot of different things. Yeah, you, know, you can hope as I did to um, be able to dunk one day like Dr. J could dunk. He was my hero. I could kind of dunk like he did on my Nerf hoop. Um, I was one bad dude on my Nerf hoop, uh, but that never came about. Sometimes those are what we call, you know, pipe dreams, and and not something you know if if uh, God had said in fourth grade when I was doing my magic on my Nerf hoop, you know that that. Uh, well, you know, would you, would you bet your your mom and your dad and your older brother and sister and your house and everything you own on, on uh, being in the NBA one day, I would have hopefully recognized the difference at that point between that kind of hope and what would actually be. Uh, but when we talk about hope in the Christian life, Hope as believers in the one true God, or as the Old Testament says, the God of heaven. That's how usually believers talk to pagan kings in the Old Testament. They just refer to him as the God of heaven, as the one, you know, because uh, they could relate to that, I guess. Um, But as we talk about hope as Christians, that's something more than just, if you could have anything that you could want, what would it be, (laughs) you know, and just have some fantasy here. But when we look at scripture, it calls us to a hope that's something that is something that's sure. Something we can bank on. As you see here, this gospel exhortation is titled Your Faith. It's about hope, but it's about confidence and action based on that hope, because that's what kind of hope we have. And that's what we can see here in this passage. And as we see Jesus come and and, uh, um, uh, add uh, more bones and flesh to this passage, so to speak. And that guides us and directs us today. So if you like to fill out blanks in an outline, you're welcome to do that. Welcome to do that now. And the first thing that God says to us in this half of looking at this passage, the first half was last week. God has promised in the gospel two two things related to Ahab here. So, you know, just review. You've been in the church a long time. If you have, you know that. I frequently refer to Luke 24 when Jesus said, Moses, the law, and the prophets, the Psalms, they all speak of me. Or as you you look at the uh, book of Hebrews, it it refers to the Old Testament as being shadows of the reality that's come in Jesus. And, And so as we look at the Old Testament, we're more informed in understanding the meaning of the Old Testament. It's all a reflection of Jesus, who he is, and what he accomplished for us. What he's doing for us now and what he'll do for us in the future. These things are all foreshadowed for us or shown in as illustrations, so to speak, even though they happened in real history. God directed that history so that it might inform us as to what Jesus is for us. And so these things that happen with Ahab and around Ahab inform us of different these two specific gospel truths, things that are part of the good news. You know, the good news of Jesus is not simply your sins are forgiven. That's true, but it's just part. Uh, but two other themes are, 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 are taken hold of um, that Jesus promotes um, that we see here in this passage. So here's the first thing, the first uh, gospel thing related to Ahab. A, in this life. So one of the parts of the good news is something that's true for you because of Jesus That occurs in this life. In this life, God will care for and protect you. That's part of the gospel. That's part of being under Jesus as your king through your faith in him, that your life is protected. We we looked at some of that in Sunday school this morning. Um, Genesis 12, 3. This is what this is based on, and this is what Ahab and the people under him have as a as a, uh, uh, under-rumblings, so to speak, of why they could be, have so much gall to say to, to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, and these 32 kings with their armies who have already decimated them, taken their silver and gold, the best of their wives and the best of their kids, why they can say, don't agree to this new demand. That he comes in and searches your house and the house of our officials and takes everything of value to them. And that then, verse 18, that he takes us into exile. Um, you know, whether whether we go out against him in, in war or in peace, Ben Hadad says, take them alive. Exile is on is, you know, in, in view here and and. As you know, if you've been with us for a couple of months here, a couple of months, haha, in First in Kings, um, you, you know that those who re- are receiving First and Second Kings are in exile. So when they read that in verse eighteen, take them alive, they say, "Yeah, I was taken alive, um, not by ben but, but by either uh, uh, by um, Shalmaneser of of." of uh, um, Assyria, for those in the north and for those in the south, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but in this life, God will care for you and protect you. And this was based on Genesis twelve three. 3. Um, God said to Abraham, as he establishes a, a covenant with a particular person, not just all mankind like, he's, like he does with Noah, or he says, I'll protect you and give you the seasons. That's a covenant with everybody. But a covenant with a particular person and his descendants, Abraham, He says that he will be with him. Um, Genesis 26, 3. I will be with you. Uh, God says to Abraham's descendant, Jacob, I'll be with you. To uh, Abraham, he had said in in that initial covenant with Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And Ben Hadad here in this passage was coming to Abraham's descendants and curse. And so they knew God, the God we follow the Lord, that he's promised to curse those who curse us. Uh, And and so they have a measure of hope here. And that's the measure of hope we can have um, in the gospel. Um, Luke 12, verses six and seven that Jim read for us, that, that Jesus said, don't worry, you're worth more than many sparrows. And God protects and upholds the sparrows. So don't worry. Um, We have this covenant protection, this protection that God has promised to us in life. Second thing, gospel thing related to Ahab here, is that in eternity, so in life, God will protect you, will care for you, and in eternity, God will give you an inheritance. God will give you an inheritance that he will keep for you until then. So there's an inheritance, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, kept in heaven for you until the last day. When Jesus comes back and you'll take hold of that inheritance in the new heavens and new, and new earth. Um, Genesis twelve seven, 7, uh, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So what was inheritance back in Old Testament days? It was land. It was a plot of land in the promised land. That was their inheritance, and that's how the Old Testament speaks of the land, the promised land. For instance, in Exodus 32, as Moses is praying to the Lord for the people after the golden calf, um, the, uh, it, God says, I will give, or actually, Moses repeats this covenant promise to the Lord when the Lord's going to wipe out his people. Uh, The Lord, uh, Moses intercedes for them and says, God, you've promised I will give your descendants. You promised to Abraham, I'll give your descendants all this land. I promised them and it will be their inheritance. As a Christian person, you need to read the word inheritance as a key word in Scripture. It's key in the Old Testament. It's promised land. That's what it's speaking of, an inheritance. It's not speaking of like when you know, your father dies and there's a will and that kind of thing. I mean, it's related. The concept is. But in the Old Testament, inheritance is talking about your plot of land distributed to you or your forefather by Joshua when you took the promised land. And you were not to give it away to someone else. And if you sold it to somebody, it was only temporary and it would come back to you and your family. And it was a wicked thing in Israel and it was in the law of Moses that you were a wicked person if you moved boundary stones. As you know, those old, you know, those uh, flags that you have around your property sometimes, you know, the, 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 the wires that come up and it's got the little orange little flag on it that mark the boundaries of your property. OK, and you were a wicked person in Israel if you moved a boundary stone because you were stealing from someone else's inheritance. These were inheritances that lasted forever. So now you get that when Peter uses this in 1 Peter 1, right? About your inheritance that will never spoil or fade away. Kept in heaven for you. Secured for you by God. It's something that will never leave. Your salvation is not just the forgiveness of sins. But it's an inheritance waiting for you for the return of Jesus. And, and I, I would say based on you know our our, our inheritance being you know, having a bodily resurrection and the, the heavens and the earth being redone, that it will be at a physical plot of land uh, that, that we have probably. But don't ch- start church over that, but it just all kind of matches up uh, there. But we have an eternity an inheritance that God will keep for us until then and the old testament promised land was just a shadow of that that you had an inheritance and that nobody should take that away from you and that god was the one who would protect your inheritance from invaders and so ahab and the people trust in this god's promised this land to us and these Aramaeans who are not israelites are in, and they're trying in this land and they're trying to take this land, which is our inheritance from us. But God said this would be a permanent inheritance to us, not something we would lose. Now, God's people receiving first and second kings had lost their inheritance for a while. Because they had gone after other gods, um, they could hear this and see this and say, yeah, we lost ours. Um, but the good news was that the prophets had said, after your exile, God will return you to your inheritance. I will not abandon you uh, forever. Uh, but for us as believers, First Peter 1, 4, listen to this, written to Christians. God has given us into, brought us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation at the last time. So you have an inheritance. This is part of the good news. There's an inheritance for you. Colossians 1.12, this is uh, our part of our call to worship and declaration of the gospel this morning. You can see it on the top of your bulletin, very first thing. We give thanks to the Father because he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in the kingdom of light. Don't gloss over that term inheritance. This is part of the gospel. There's an inheritance for us. There's something for us there. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins just gets us into the door of this inheritance that God has for us in his kingdom. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, What do new covenant people get? What do Christians get? Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, so two things we get in the gospel that are addressed in this Ahab passage here. The first thing is protection in your life. You get that in the gospel. Jesus is king and he reigns in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God in Ephesians 1, 23, He rules over all things, all principalities, that's satanic and human. He rules over all things for the sake of his church. That's for you. He's not ruling over all people, forcing people to do good things. But he is sovereignly ruling over all things for your protection now. Nothing's happening to you in life that is not under the sovereign care and protection of Jesus, your king, who's reigning over everything for the sake of you, the church. And the other thing you're getting in eternity is an an inheritance. Now, number two, number two. Mm -hmm. Know that God offers life protection and eternal inheritance to even the worst of sinners. So these two promises can come to even the worst of sinners. And then in your parentheses here, just a reminder, this is Ahab. (laughs) And God is offering to Ahab protection in his life and to keep his inheritance. Now, why do we say this is Ahab? Well, just look back a couple chapters. Go to chapter 16, verse 33. Let's see how Ahab stacks up to other kings. This is kind of our introduction to Ahab in, in the book of uh, Kings. You, you get these introductions into a king where it says he took over when he was this old and he reigned for this many years and then it gives us a final summary of his life and then it, it, then it takes a step back and it gives us some details of his life and then he dies and someone else takes over. This is the initial introduction into Ahab. It's a review over his whole life and verse 33 says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. <laughs> and he's done nothing good, but chase, he's, this is the king that chased Ahab around and made him hide for three and a half years. This is the king who married Jezebel, who is from Tyre or Sidon. I forget which which one she's from and introduces uh, in, in um, exponential form uh, Asherah worship and who seeks out Elijah and wants to kill all the prophets. This is the king that's allowing this to go on. Um, the worst of all kings yet. And God offers to Ahab protection of his life and keeping of his inheritance. So that informs us as to the extent of the grace of God. Don't let someone tell you that God is not gracious in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system is graciousness. It's God killing animals instead of sending people to eternal destruction. And he's really blessing people through the Uh, sacrificial system but he's taking a guy like ahab and he's doing this offering this to him so know this in life um, whether you're not a christian yet whether you have family members who are not christians yet whether you have a neighbor or relative who are the nastiest of people or the biggest antagonists against jesus and the gospel they are not as bad as ahab you don't know anyone as bad as Ahab. Are they instituting uh, a Asherah worship in a church? That would be the equivalent. Okay, the promised land, that was the church. That's where everyone was in covenant with God. Okay, and so today, that's that's a local church. And so nobody you know is as bad as Ahab, and God offers to Ahab the protection of his life and in, uh, the keeping of his inheritance. And so God offers this in the gospel uh, to the worst, even the worst of sinners, as he offers it to the worst of all kings here. Um, so um, God's people reading this, this book, uh, knew that their inheritances were gone, at least for a time. Um, they had lost them either in Second Kings 17, that's the, that's the scattering of the, the northern kingdom, or in Second Kings uh, twenty four and twenty five, that's the exile of the southern kingdom off to off to Babylon. Uh, but God had communicated to them that He would return them, uh, that He would return them to the land. Um, God told them in Ezekiel thirty seven twelve. Uh, he told Ezekiel, therefore, prophesy. This is Ezekiel. He's in exile. Ezekiel's in exile and he says these words to the exiles. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you, that's an expression for the exile, (laughs) being in the grave. Um, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Okay, So this is a promise um, to God's people that their inheritances were not lost forever even though they had continued to live in the ways of Ahab for hundreds of years after Ahab lived lived, and that their inheritances God gave over to these foreign nations, that God was extending to them, the exiles, the worst of sinners, those who were so bad, finally God said, okay, enough. I'm actually going to fulfill my promise to send you into exile." That they're gaining an inheritance back is the message of First Kings here. The inheritance that you lost is gained back, is gained back by your by your simple faith. So these great sinners could know this. So a, there in your outline, know that the sin you've done in the past is never a barrier to being brought into. And here are the three here are the three inheritances a person can have. Your sin in the past is never a barrier as it was not to Ahab, as it was not to those who went into exile and then came back to the promised land in Ezra chapter one, uh, about 70 years later. Your sin you've done in the past is never a barrier to being brought into church membership. That's your inheritance right now as a believer. You're brought into the promised land of the church where all your neighbors, your fellow church members are in covenant with God. And that you're blessed by neighbors who believe and, and worship the Lord with you and encourage you in your faith. And you get to, to eat of the, the body and blood of Jesus and, and be refreshed and reminded uh, of uh, his death for you, um, that he endured in exile. Um, Father, you know, uh, uh, um, why have you abandoned me? And that was Jesus' exile uh, there on the cross. Uh, but it's never a barrier to you being brought into church membership. Or when you die, here's your inheritance. Your soul goes to heaven. So into heaven, that's your second blank there. And then the third and final phase of your inheritance uh, is that you're brought into the new heavens and new earth. Um, so no sin is too great. First uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, he's, he's making the argument, God can save anybody. And he, he reviews right before verse 15 there that he persecuted the church that he brought people to death who were because they were believers in Jesus what worse could you do than that paul reasons and so therefore if god can bring me to faith if god has forgiven my sin for persecuting the church and killing christians then he can forgive anyone's sins and that's paul's argument in 1st 1 timothy 1:15 1 that god has saved me the worst of sinners is what paul calls himself because of his record of persecuting the church so be application for you who are a believer you know be a, be assured in your faith but secondly be know that there is no friend no friend or relative of yours that god will not save because his or her number or severity of sins is too great there's no person you know who's not a believer now that god will refuse to save because their sins are too many or because their sins are too grotesque. And that's good news. So don't look at people who are unbelievers around you and say the nice ones are likely to believe in Jesus and the nasty ones are unlikely to believe in Jesus. Oftentimes it's opposite. Uh, you know, uh, if you've been around a while, you know Betsy and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew, and, and uh, our our emphasis in, in that particular campus ministry was evangelism. So we did lots of evangelism. We walked people through the gospel and said, do you believe this? And if they did, we prayed a prayer with them and then met with them to teach them the Bible after that. And and, and my experiences, which was literally hundreds and hundreds, I, I calculated it once. And it was like, well, anyway, there's a lot of people. And, and, and um, the people I thought, oh, this guy will believe, didn't and the people I thought, man, what am I doing here? Often they did. Um, whether it was just a, a big intimidating guy at a friend in my fraternity, Dave Radcliffe, a uh, football player on the, you know, it started on the football team, big, massive guy, um, look like a guy you didn't want to say hi to, or he'd bite your head off. And I said, after going through the gospel, do you believe this? He said, I do. And, and he believed and, and, and um, I remember a guy that, uh, you know, Betsy met this, this one, Rob Galleon, who was a, a science guy. And I was in biology and chemistry classes with with Rob. And, and, um, and, and you know, so all this stuff that we're getting in, in our biology and chemistry classes of evolution and this kind of thing. And he doesn't even like psychology and sociology because it's a soft science and less exact remember right where we were walking on the sidewalk in front of the science building at Wittenberg University and him talking about that. And and he hears the gospel and he believes Uh, and and, um, um, supported us in ministry financially after that, after college. And just, uh, you know, and and so you just never know. So don't look at people that way. All the Christians were saying, if anyone won't believe, it's Saul of Tarsus. (laughs) So remember that. Um, So um, believe there is no. Believe that there is no friend or relative of yours that God will not say because uh, they have too many sins or the severity of their sins is too great. Therefore, next line for you, speak with them about Jesus. Speak with them about Jesus and hopefully just be wonderfully surprised. It's okay to think, boy, they're far from Christ. But a lot of times when people are really spewing venom figuratively, um, against Jesus and, and and belief in God and all that kind of thing a lot of times they're on their last leg they're about they're they're screaming their last scream and then they're going to rest on their side on the dirt and say why am i so upset you know and that's what paul was on on the road to damascus that his last scream against his god <laughs> Um, so let's see know, know this with Ahab and the enormity of Ahab's sin, the enormity of anyone else's sin, um, Jesus is infinite God. Jesus is infinite God, God is infinite and Jesus and one of the reasons it's so important that we cling to this doctrine that Jesus is not only fully human but also fully God is because we need his infinitude if that's a word. <laughs> We need his infinitude because we need Jesus to die, not just for one person in exchange for just one person. If Jesus is just a man and he was perfect in all his obedience, maybe then he could substitute for one person. But we need Jesus to be infinite. We need him to be fully God as well, which the scriptures declare him to be because Jesus is infinite God. Here's the rest of your C there. So he was able on the cross to bear in his body, in his body every sin, every sin of every one of his people. I know this is a long, a long sentence, but Thomas Jefferson did it, so we can too. <laughs> he was able to bear in his, on the cross, bear in his body every sin of every one of his people and to suffer the Father's just wrath against all of those sins. He had all of your sins in his body. The Father had elected you and others he had elected, and all those sins, whether those people were living in the past like Noah, or whether people were living in his day like Peter, or whether people were living in the future like you guys and me, he knew you. And he bore your sins, some which you haven't committed yet. You hear that language in our elders properly in our elders as we come to confession of sins. We know that even the sins we've not committed yet were in your body, Jesus, on the cross. Therefore, penalty has been paid for them and there's nothing less left for our sins, even in the future, in the, the fair court of justice of you, our father. Because Jesus bore in his body, 1 Peter 2.24, he bore in his body all our sins. And he endured God's wrath for all our sins. This is what infinite God on the cross did for you. And so it's just—it's a ridiculous thing to think all of God's people, all the time, all their sins are upon Jesus in His body on the cross, and to think there's a person you know <laughs> whose sin somehow exceeds that sum total. Um, and so that's good news for us. Um, so He suffers God's just wrath against all of those sins going on in our sentence there, combined at once. That is, that there is no amount of sin from one person that exceeded exceeded his infinite capacity to bear that sin and to be punished for it. He could have died for more sins, but he died for the sins of his pe- he died for the sins of his people. Right, Matthew one twenty one. Um, you know, the Savior has been born to us, and he dies for the sins of his people to save his people from their sins, is what Matthew 121 says. So as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1 or 2 Thessalonians 110, the Father raised from the dead uh, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay? Um, Father raises for us Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Um, so Jesus took the wrath um, on the cross for you. So that you don't have to endure the wrath that's coming to those who haven't believed in him at the last day. So to to finish this off, D, D, God always has salvation open. God always has salvation open for a person to receive regardless of his past sins as with Ahab. God always has salvation open for a person to receive regardless of his past sins as what they have. So if you're talking to somebody who hasn't believed yet and they think they have to clean their life up first, no, God's ready to receive them right now. And their sins, they don't have to make up for them. All their sins, if they believe, were made up for on the cross because all the wrath for all their sins was expended upon Jesus all at once back then upon our King and Savior, infinite God, jesus so whether it's paul and acts 9 being rescued for all the sins he committed against jesus or whether it's the the thief uh the criminal on the cross luke twenty three forty three, uh jesus can say surely today you'll be with me in paradise because uh, that man interesting you know jesus there bearing that man's sins isn't that an interesting thought that's just a side point bearing that man's sins in his body as they hung there on the cross and telling him you'll be with me today in paradise because i've got your sins here upon me so number 3 number 3 as a christian as a christian thinking of these two thinking of these two things god's protection for you in life and your inheritance in eternity as a christian hope in these things As Ahab did. Ahab uh, hoped in these things that God would protect him. uh, Verses 9 and and verse 11 there. Uh, He hopes in these things that God would protect him. And that God would keep his inheritance for him. Against the Aramaeans and their allies. Um, When he says in verse 9. No. I won't uh, grant this second demand or as he refuses in his uh, verse 11 quote about the armor. Uh, one who's put, who has not put on his armor yet should not brag like one who's taking it off. You haven't fought the battle yet. So Ahab has this, this hope, and we as Christians are called to this same hope. Whatever's going on in my life, whatever's threatening right, me right now, God has called me to hope that he always protects me in life. And even in death, God has called me to this hope that I will have an eternal inheritance, that there's something for me and it's better, right? And An inheritance is better than what you have right now. Um, We're called to that hope, Uh, we're to cling to that. So the first verse from 1 Peter 1 that Jim read for us this morning, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Jesus has Jesus gone to take his inheritance and he's been protected through death. And our hope, in, that's shown in the resurrection. And so we're called to this kind of hope. That's a living hope that we keep with us all our lives. That there's an inheritance for us in the future. And that God will protect us always. So, uh, A, there in your outline. A few things about hope. This kind of hope that we have. Hope includes, first, belief in what is promised. Belief in what is promised. Uh, Ahab believes, if you look at verse 14. The prophet comes to him after he gives this rejection based on a covenant promise to Abraham. He says, no, you're not going to take it all. Um, But then a prophet comes to him and says, says, God will give you victory. And so Ahab has this has this hope, he believes this, and, and he asks a follow-up question to this. It's not a question of doubt, it's a, a question of you know just, okay, great. And he says, "Who will do this? Is it me? Do I have to hire troops from the Philistines, or something you know other kings have done those, those kind of things? Who does this? And, and the Lord answers him there. Uh, but but Jesus says this to us as well. Hope includes first belief. Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom God has sent. That's step A. You believe. Uh, and so hope calls us to believe. Then B, hope includes secondly, action. Hope includes action. We believe first and then we act. And this action is an action that comes from belief. Those are your two blanks. Hope includes, secondly, action that comes from what we have believed, which is what God has said is true, what God has promised. And so verse 15, Ahab takes action. He doesn't just talk. It's not just words with the prophet. He actually calls the young officers of the provincial commanders. I got that down for you this week. He actually calls for the young officers of the, because God has said who he's, he said who will do this and he says the young officers of the provincial commanders that feels so good to finally know that <laughs> and so he calls them he summons them he takes action he really believes and if you really believe you take action on your belief and so Ahab did and he did Ahab did and that's an example uh, for us there. He acts in belief on these two assurances from God, calls these young officers of the provincial commanders, and he sends them out first. Two, that was Ahab's other question: Who starts the battle? And the Lord answers him through the prophet: You will. So Ahab says, "Okay, great, we're we're marching out. We're not going to wait here behind our wall, behind our fortress. We're going to go start the battle." And so Ahab does this. He takes action based on based on his belief. He's sure what he's heard is true. He's sure God will fulfill his covenant promise regarding inheritances. So we're told in Hebrews 11, 1, that we're to be, um, uh, we're to be sure of these things um, and take action. Um, James uh, 2, 26. Um, James says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without the deeds is dead if someone believes how do you tell if it's true belief or not are they doing deeds that are spilling out from this belief are they acting according to the things that are promised and james is clear it's not the deeds that save us but the the faith that saves us does deeds and the faith that says Ahab gathers the young officers of the provincial commanders. I'm going to keep saying that because it feels good. And he gathers them and then he sends out them out first. That's how you know he really believes that God is going to rescue him and the people. Um, so that's James 2.26. Uh, now, when I was in uh, middle school, junior high for us older folks, when I was in junior high, Willis Junior High, Frank B. Willis Junior High, Frank B. Willis was running against FDR for the Democratic nomination at some point in the 40s, and he spoke at Gray Chapel in my hometown, political speech in his uh, uh, campaign, and he had just had a big meal, and he he spoke there, walked off stage, had a heart attack, and died. So we named a high school after him, (laughs) which was the junior high when I went to school. (laughs) Uh, After we, uh, anyway, Um, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, in ju- in junior high, I lived on Northwood Drive in Delaware, Ohio. And behind, well, actually, uh, just across the street, behind what would become my f- best friend's house, they built a house when I was in seventh grade, and it was behind his house, was a pond. And in Ohio, it got cold enough that the pond would freeze over. And we would ice skate on this pond. In the summer, we would swim in it um, and get that, that pond scum mud in our between our toes as we walked out in there. But in, in the winter, we could skate. We, we did hockey and skated around, all that kind of thing. But it was Ohio. It wasn't Rochester, New York, where I was from, where things were just cold, 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 you know, like Buffalo right now. Um, and and uh, But, you know, it, it was always a, a question in Ohio. Was the pond, all the ice, frozen solid enough for us to skate on? Or would we wind, wind up trying to swim with skates? <laughs> and so you know if my brother and sister had been across and there i'd say how's the ice is it solid and i was going across to it and they'd say it's fine you can you can go all over the place now if i believed what they said i would just put on my skates and just start skating all over the place but that's that's action based on faith action based on something i believe in the trustworthiness of my brother and sister um, and so that's that's the difference when we talk about this, this hope that we have. It's a hope that takes action. It's a hope that actually puts on the skates and goes out there on the ice. So understand your next line there. Understand that God ordinarily accomplishes his promises through through your subsequent action and uh, that assumes, your action that assumes that his promises are true. God ordinarily, and that's what we talked about in our, our um, confessing what we believe this morning. God God's decree, He promises certain things, but He promises certain things that are in accordance with our with our actions. God ordinarily accomplishes His decree through means. And that's through people. And, and so how how did He accomplish His decree, His decree to save me through Tracy Cauldron sharing the gospel with my sister who shared the gospel with me. People doing things. I've come to believe this. I believe your eternity rests on this. So Therefore, I'm sharing this message with you that Jesus died on the cross for sins and for your sins, if you believe. And so God accomplishes things through our actions. And so we see these various actions in these various verses that I've listed there for you. Thus, number four, as a Christian, as a Christian, act. Live your life. As a Christian, act. Live your life in confidence. Act in confidence that God will always protect you in your life. Act with confidence that God will always protect you and in confidence that he has reserved for you an eternal inheritance. That, that, that's what li- lies before you in the end. So Ahab acts in belief. These two assurances of God as he, as he does what he does here in verses 14 through 17. Um, he acts on it, he's sure of this. Hebrews 11.1 1 reads, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. None of us can see that God is taking care of us. That's all by faith. So, you know, Bill prays and his son is taken care of. Other people would say that's happenstance. It's faith where we say, God heard my prayer. He knew this was going on. He just troubled my spirit a little bit so that I prayed for my son's um, safety And God brought his safety about and it wasn't even just through him not seeing accidents but actually almost being in a couple of accidents that didn't happen so that I would know that I, Yahweh, am the Lord. I hear and that I answer prayer. Okay, that's all by faith. You know, and the atheist would say, ah, but we're sure of and certain of what we do not see. So you ask A, Here are the things we can ask and answer. A, can I act in faithfulness to God? Can I act in faithfulness to God, obeying his commands, obeying his commands, even counterculturally? When I'm obeying, when everyone's going to say, you're a nut, or you believe that, I hate people like you. Oh, are you one of those born-againers, as he used to say in the 80s? Are you one of those Christians? Are you one of those bigots? One of those unloving people? You know we can un- unpack that. No, we're not, we're actually loving um but but can I have can I have can I act in faithfulness, obeying God's commands, even counterculturally because I know that God has my back as we say, that God has my back in life, and our answer to this, of course, is yes. Romans eight twenty eight. God's working out all things. One of the consequences of Jesus being at the right hand of God's God's throne is that He's working all things out together for our good. He's called us to Himself, and now He's working everything out together for our good. So we can proceed confidently in life, doing what's right, and not worrying about what might happen to us if we do what's right. When we kind of sense that if I do what if I do what's right you know what's going to hit the fan. We can go ahead and do what's right and know that we're in God's sovereign care for us, even though 32 kings and Ben-Hadad are after us and they've already stolen our silver and gold and our wives and our kids. So when we have those tough decisions of faith in life, we can know that God has our back and that he protects us in all things, just like he did Ahab, and Ahab was bad. (laughs) You folks are being more faithful than Ahab. You're here this morning. Ahab wasn't. This is his first act of faith in his whole life that we know of. Second question you can ask. Can I have no fear of death? Because in death my soul will find that mere faith in Jesus. Mere faith in Jesus is all that's required to receive an eternal inheritance. Can you have no fear in death? And as death approaches, and the answer of course here too is yes i can have no fear of death ephesians 2 8 and 9 you know we're saved through faith mere faith you know it really is an excellent question to ask if you've had any evangelism training at all that says you know if you died you asked somebody you know if you died tonight and we're standing before god and he says why should i let you into heaven what would you say it really is a good question and a good answer Because I have faith in Jesus. That's why you should let me in. Well, what about you're a good boy too? Nope. That's not why God will let me into heaven. Mere faith in Jesus. Mere faith in Jesus. God will protect me. God will keep my inheritance. Because of mere faith in Jesus. And, And so that's good, that's good enough. And that's what we can have confidence in. Our hope is not in us being good enough. Our our hope is not in us believing in Jesus and then being faithful. Our hope is in Jesus that our sins were in his body on the cross and then he suffered all the wrath that is due those sins then. Now see, faithfulness is supported by the certainty of these two promises. That is, if you keep these things in mind, my eternity is secure my inheritance in heaven is secure and god will always protect me in life if i keep these two things in life that frees me up to be more faithful because i realize nothing can harm me nothing can take away my inheritance in eternity nothing can take away the fact that god will protect me in all things even if he's protecting me through death so faithfulness is supported by the certainty of these two promises and so you see, is the more confident I am of these promises, the more faithful you will be. So we have that example with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're confident either way. They kind of give that 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 bold bold statement uh, to Nebuchadnezzar: "We will not bow, and our God will save us when you toss us into this fiery furnace." And then they say. But even if not, we will not bow to you. You're not God. They knew their God would rescue them in life or in death. And so they were able to be faithful in their exile, which is what we're in, surrounded by unbelievers all the time, except right now. Um, We're able to be faithful in life because our death is assured. Our eternal inheritance is assured. And God will protect us in life as well. And so we can be faithful. Nothing's going to, we're, we're bulletproof, right? Now we may die, but we're bulletproof. Now, lastly, lastly, number five. Number five. Uh, as you proceed in living life in faithfulness to God, don't shrink back in your faith. Don't shrink back in your faith upon the threats of unbelievers. Don't shrink back in your faith upon the threats of unbelievers. Well, if you don't do this, you're fired. If you don't do this, I won't be your friend. Well, if you're one of those people, I'm breaking up with you, or whatever it is. Um, As you proceed in living life in faithfulness to God, don't shrink back in your faith upon the threats of unbelievers, um, which we see with Ahab here in verses five and six on this second threat, uh, because, A, first of all, God will reward you when you act in faith on his promises, regardless of what naysayers you know what naysayers do? They say. <laughs> they naysay, but I didn't leave you enough space for that. God will reward you when you act in faith on his promises, regardless of what naysayers say in disbelief, in their disbelief of God's promises. They're disbelieving, but what they're believing is untrue. So don't follow it. Don't be threatened by them. Um, There's this promise in verse 13 that Ahab follows. And so in verse 20 through 22 there in your text, you see they're just going through and they're like the Jedi in episode one. You know, anyone who's before them; they're just like slaughtering everybody. You know, the force is clear and all that kind of thing. And they're just wiping out anyone who's before them. And they're going through, and they're, you know, I love the language there, as I said to you last week. And each one struck, verse 20, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Aramaeans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben Hadad, king of Aram, escaped. He had to escape. So this threatener is now running for his life and escaping. He escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. But, verse 21, the king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses. On the Aramans. Um, so Colossians 3.24 says, You know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. That's what God says to us as Christians. Just keep being faithful. You know you will receive an inheritance as a reward. Revelation 22.12 says, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's there. All that has to happen is the last time has to come. That is when Jesus comes back. That's what Peter's talking about there. So everything's true, even though the unbeliever who's threatening you or calling you a fool can't see it. But just because he's blind and can't see that there's a wall in front of him that he's about to walk into doesn't mean that there's not a wall in front of him that he's about to walk into. So don't be swayed by his words or threatened by them or or, or moved in any way toward him. So B, the naysayer, the threat giver, is not greater. Another thing we see in this passage. The naysayer, which is Ben-Hadad, is not greater, he's not stronger, he's not smarter, or more knowledgeable than God, and even if he or she were Satan himself. So, verse 13 God is the one who gives victory on the earth. So, Tim Tebow is right. <laughs> All things are under God's sovereignty. Okay? God is the one who gives victory, not a strong king with a strong army, who, by the way, has 32 other kings with armies. That doesn't decide the battle. Um, yeah, that's, that's Ecclesiastes. Which is Solomon realized at the end of his life, the race is not to the swift. It should be. Nor is the battle to the strong. It should be. But Solomon recognized... It's who God wants to win. That's who wins. Um, And and so, you know, the naysayer is not greater uh, than God. God decides the battle. Uh, Luke 12, uh, Jesus says this in verses four and five that Jim read for you. Jesus put it emphatically there. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you. Don't be afraid of Ben Haddad. Don't be afraid of someone who calls you a fool because you believe in Jesus. Don't be afraid of somebody who says, you're, you're ridiculous because you're not, um, you're not doing this thing that you, call, that you say is immoral because God says it's immoral. Don't be intimidated by that. Um, those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear, Jesus says. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. First Peter 5, 8. The devil indeed prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yet, John says in First John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So even if that person who's making fun of you or or, or chiding you or, or, or threatening you in some way because of your faith in Jesus, even if they seem powerful to you, even if they were the devil himself, greater is the one who is in you than he who is in the world. The outcome of whatever it is is in the hands of our God, not in the hands of that person, not in the hands of Ben Hadad, though they may think it. Um, Revelation 12, we've been looking at at Sunday school. Even God's angels are stronger than Satan and his angels. Um, So basically, God rules. Remember that. God rules over all things. He's the great and powerful one. He determines destinies. He determines the outcome of everything. Others, for all their boastings and threats, and for all the people that gather around them, because broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, no matter how many people they gather around them to make you to gather around you and just say you're a fool, they're not deciding the outcome. God gives the victory. So remember that. Then C. Remember that human antagonists, another way to look at this to help you out when you're being made fun of for your faith. Remember that human antagonists often have lives that undermine their opinion, that undermine their opinion and threat from holding any weight. So in other words, don't let their threats, don't let like they're, they're making fun of you, have any weight with you. Look at their lives. See, we see that here. There's a battle at hand, and what's Ben-Hadad doing? He's getting drunk, and the other king's with him, and the battle's starting, and they're in a tent getting drunk. They're not ready for they're not ready for battle. Um, they're making boasts, and they haven't put on their armor yet. <laughs> And we're to to see that with the people around us. Note this about the people around you. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They have blind minds. There are things that are true that they're not seeing. And they're speaking out of blindness. It's like a blind person saying there are four other people in this room when they just walked into the room and they don't know if a single person's in there. Matthew fifteen, twelve through fourteen, Jesus said, The Pharisees were blind guides. Don't follow them. They're leading people into a ditch. Uh, Romans one, eighteen through thirty-two, despite what the world says, they're living lives of foolishness. They're bowing down to the creature instead of the creator. Dumb thing to do. Or people that Peter talked about in First Peter four living lives of debauchery and, and chiding you because you're not running with them anymore like you used to before you had faith in Jesus. Hold firm. Note this about the people who make fun of us for our faith. They're spiritually blind. They're full of empty and uninformed words. They don't know more than you. They know less than you. Empty and uninformed words. Words without understanding they don't understand more than you they understand less they're vastly uninformed they're blind guides they stand in league with those who crucified jesus people who are blind put jesus on the cross as we would have in our blindness Um, people who are, are chiding us have lives of immorality that's seen here in this passage look at their lives they have lives of immorality Whether that's just how they treat people, how they talk about people, how they cheat in certain things and cut corners, and whether or not they're talking about it, they are paying for it. Now, they're not highlighting that because they don't want it emphasized that what I am doing has bad consequences. They want you to join them in what they're doing to kind of bolster them into thinking, maybe I am okay. He's doing it too. See, there's one more person doing it. And so look at a person's life and say, this person's eating the pudding they've made and they've made the pudding with cayenne pepper in it. Hopefully you don't like that and that illustration worked. <laughs> <laughs> so look at the lives of people who are making fun of you for their faith. How's their relationship with their kids? How's their relationship with their mom and their dad? How is their relationship with their siblings? How, how, do, their, how do their bosses look down upon them? How's that, you know, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Okay. Um, th- this person's not a naysayer or a threatener, but I have a, a, a neighbor that's about five years old, and he was helping me rake leaves um, this week on Wednesday, helping me rake leaves down my driveway. His name's Emmett, and Emmett always has funny things to say to his parents, and he's a nice, nice little boy. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. and found it the next day. It was his dad's birthday. Um and uh he he said, How old are you? And I said, fifty-five. And he said, Oh, my dad's older than you. He's forty two. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't argue. One of the funny things about Kramer on Seinfeld is he argues with you know like he argues with a chimpanzee and <laughs> just realize that, you know, people who are arguing with you, they're the five year old saying, my dad is older than you. He's 42 and you're 13 years older. You just say, oh, OK, <laughs> which is what I do. Oh, OK, and, and uh, realize that about unbelievers, you know, they're, they're five year olds or less in terms of their understanding of what life is about and what eternity is about. Um, so summary for you. God's protection today and eternal inheritance. God's protection today and eternal inheritance for you in the end. Christ has gained back for you. So these two things we talked about last week that Adam lost for you. He lost for you your inheritance. (laughs) He lost for you Christ's protection. That Christ has gained those things back for you as you have laid hold of it through your faith in him as you've laid as you've laid hold of it through your faith in him. And then secondly, therefore, proceed, proceed in confident belief and confident belief that God will provide these things, his protection for you in life and, and inheritance for you in eternity, in life and, and, and death and beyond, um, in life and death and beyond or evermore or in eternity. Let's pray.